History This Week, June 28, 1970. I'm Sally Helm. People have begun to gather in Lower Manhattan's Sheridan Square. They're carrying signs under their arms, unfurling banners, setting the stage for a celebration, the Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade. What would become simply Pride. This crowd is just about a block away from the Stonewall Inn. There, almost exactly one year earlier, a very different scene played out. New York City police officers raided the Stonewall in the middle of the night. And a crowd of queer people at the bar fought back. The so-called Stonewall riots sparked a year of intense organizing. And now, about a thousand people have gathered in the same spot, and they begin to march, chanting, say it loud, gay is proud. Estimates vary, but by the time the parade reaches Central Park, there are as many as 10 to 20,000 people there. A lot has changed in a year. Today, Stonewall to Pride. How did a night of rebellion outside a bar become two nights, then three, then a year of protest and organizing, and then a massive movement? A movement that has changed what it means to be queer in this country. For this episode, we talked to two people. One is Jason Bauman, who works with LGBTQ plus history collections at the New York Public Library. He's also edited a book about Stonewall that includes a lot of personal narratives, asking the question, How did it feel? You know, and what did it mean to people? to be there. And why does everybody want to say they were there? You know, (laughs) everybody wants to say they were at Stonewall. We also talked to someone who was indeed at Stonewall and has dedicated his life to LGBTQ activism. Mark Siegel. I seem to have somehow been lucky enough to be at the pivotal part of almost everything that's ever happened in the struggle for LGBT rights. When he was a kid growing up in the 1950s and 60s, Siegel couldn't have predicted where his life would take him. If you were growing up at my time, you didn't let anyone know that you were gay. When I was growing up in Philadelphia, I thought I was the only gay person in Philadelphia. Tell us a bit about what those years were like when you knew, but you weren't telling people and you felt you had to hide it. The word that just came up in my mind was anguish. I knew I was supposed to be all those bad things that they talked about, but I wasn't. And it didn't make any sense to me. So that created an anguish inside of me. And I think most gay people have that anguish. Yeah, no, totally. I'm bi and I came out when I was 18. And it's really similar to what you're describing. And I feel that, you know, even obviously in those decades, it's changed a lot. But I'm still, I'm so jealous of the Gen Zs. It's changed even more since (laughs) that time. I'm not jealous of them. I'm like celebrating them. Yeah, totally. That's a healthier way to think about it. I'll get there. Of course, there are still many queer people today who feel that anguish or who feel that they can't safely be who they are. And that comes from a long history of oppression. Jason Bauman reminded us, in the 50s and 60s, being queer was actually illegal. 
the thing that I'm always trying to get people to understand is you could serve life in prison for homosexuality. In addition, it was classified as a mental illness. So you were facing both incarceration or you're facing institutionalization, electroshock therapy. It was a very terrifying time. But even in those years, you can see the seeds of Stonewall, if you look close. In 1959, at a popular queer hangout spot in Los Angeles called Cooper Donuts, cops arrest three queer people just for being who they are. That causes an anti-police riot 10 years before Stonewall. Something similar happens at Philadelphia's Compton's Cafe in 1966 and in 1967 at the Black Cat in L.A. That time, queer patrons are arrested on New Year's Eve, and demonstrators return to the Black Cat six weeks later for a more organized protest with about 500 people. Word traveled slower then than it does now, but... Black Cat or Compton's Cooper Donut, those things were reported on in this growing LGBT press. They produced the magazines passed all around the country. There were activist groups organizing, calling for change. The most famous were the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Billets. They called for things like the right to employment. There were some demonstrations, including in Mark Siegel's backyard in Philadelphia. Demonstrations for gay rights took place once a year, every July 4th, from 1965 through 1969. I grew up in Philadelphia. I was a gay man. I didn't know they were happening. That's how invisible we were as a people. The tactics at these demonstrations were relatively conservative. There was even a dress code, suit and tie. They wanted to fit into the 1950s society. At least that's the way people my generation looked at it. But Siegel didn't even really know that he was a part of this generation until he left Philadelphia. That happened when he was 18, during his senior year of high school in 1969. I didn't even wait for my graduation. I got out on May 10th, a full month before my graduation, and just left. I could not wait. He got on the train to New York City. I told my parents I was going to school there, which was not true. He was excited to venture out on his own, but also scared. What are you doing? Where are you going? You're going into the void. There's nothing there. You have nothing waiting for you. You don't know anybody. You don't have any money coming in. You have no place to live. I guess I, I believed. I believed that there was a better life, and it was with people like myself and that I would find them in New York. Siegel ended up finding a room at the YMCA. His first week in New York, he sought out the Mattachine Society. He knew about them from a TV interview he'd seen with one of their members. So he went to their office. I was 18 at the time, and I was kindly asked to leave because they were afraid that they would be rated for disrupting the morals of a minor. But at that visit, he met a young man named Marty Robinson, who was a frustrated Mattachine member. Marty made the point clear that day, these are ridiculous rules. He felt that our community needed a radical shift. Robinson and Siegel became friends. But it was hard at first for Siegel to find that big community he was looking for. Of course, there's no neon sign pointing, this way to the gay people! <laughs> but eventually I found Christopher Street. And the minute I got on Christopher Street, it was like Nirvana. Wow, people, people like me, people that I could talk to. Looking back at it now, it was sort of, I guess, magical in the sense 
that I fit in immediately. I don't think I've ever fit in immediately anywhere else before that in my life. Early on, Siegel discovered a prominent queer hangout spot on Christopher Street, the Stonewall Inn. There was a doorman, they would let you in, they would charge you, usually to get in. If you were a regular like I was, you didn't get charged, or if you were young and cute, which at one point I was young and cute, but you believe it. It's amazing how my image of it differs with people who grew up in New York and lived there for a long while. Their image of it was, it was a seedy bar with water down drinks, blah, blah, blah. Was there a mob connection at Stonewall? Oh my God, would you ever suggest such a thing? <laughs> yes, as we have learned, the mob owned it. Jason Bauman said it kind of made sense that there was a connection between the Stonewall and organized crime. To be a homosexual at that time was to be a criminal. And so, of course, bars that catered to criminals would be owned by the mafia. At the Stonewall and other bars like it, there was a constant threat of police raids. Siegel says... You were used to getting raided. And it usually was very simple. They would come in, they would take their payoff, they might card a few people and leave. It was illegal to dance with someone of the same sex. It was illegal to wear clothing that didn't match your assigned gender. And it was illegal to serve drinks to queer people. But for Siegel, this didn't really put a damper on things. He loved the Stonewall. To me, it was fabulous because I could go in there and it was the only place where I could go and be myself. At the Stonewall, people of all races and ages and gender identities came together to have a good time. I could talk with my friends. I could scream. I could shout. More importantly, the most important thing I could do as an 18 years old, I could dance. I could dance. Siegel started going to the Stonewall every night. And he was there on the night of June 28, 1969, just six weeks after he'd arrived in New York. I was in the back of the bar talking to friends, and the lights flickered on and off. And I asked somebody, what's going on? And they said very nonchalantly, oh, we're being raided. Within hours, the course of Mark Siegel's life and of the movement would change forever. When police raided bars like the Stonewall, they usually gave the owners a heads up. But not that night in June. What made this night different was the bar wasn't made aware there was going to be a raid. They came in, they pushed people around, they started harassing people, they took money from people. It was violent. People have described the cops smashing the jukebox, beating people up on the dance floor. They check Siegel's ID, see that he's 18, which is the legal drinking age at the time, and they let him go. So I walked across the street, and I was just perplexed on what, what the hell was that? I had never seen anything like that in my life before. And one by one, as people came out, we began to talk about what happened. I began to understand how the cops could feel like they could literally beat us, take our money, do anything they wish. And I guess, for me, that began a boiling point, which lasted all that night, realizing that everything I had thought for the last 18 years of my life was being brought to the attention of my, my eyes by those police. They were representing every single piece of oppression I had ever gone through. Siegel is one of the first on the street 
but more and more people are pouring out of the stone wall. And people already on the street join the crowd too. They're all getting restless, frustrated, angry. The police are dragging people to vans, beating them with batons, especially targeting anyone wearing clothes that the cops don't think are gender conforming. But at a certain point, the people outside realize that the cops are pinned inside the stone wall. We realized that we had them entrapped in the bar. We were incarcerating them. It became very clear to us that we were in control, which meant we were in control of our street, meaning our neighborhood, Christopher Street, for the very first time. Siegel said it's hard to tell the next part of the story in clear chronological order. It's a riot. We're all doing different things at different times, and it went on, it seems, in my mind, forever or all night. What I remember is being across the street, watching things being thrown. I didn't throw anything. At least I don't remember throwing anything. I do remember things that were being thrown, cans, bottles, coins. There's a story about a brick. There was no brick thrown because there was no bricks in the area. Jason Bauman has read many, many accounts of Stonewall, and he says this problem of memory is very common. For example, two trans women of color, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, are often credited with starting things, beginning to push back against the police. And it's true that they were hugely important that night and were hugely important activists in the years that followed. But in an interview, Johnson herself said that she didn't get to the Stonewall until later that night. Bauman says, this kind of thing comes up in many accounts. I think it's, it's, that it's very hard to do that kind of blow by blow. It's, it's funny for me, having been in, like having been part of major demonstrations, I don't remember every single thing that happened. The stories of Stonewall are as varied and chaotic as the night itself. It's just the nature of memory. But many things are clear. The cops barricaded themselves in the bar, waiting out the angry crowd. Someone set the front of the bar on fire. Reinforcements arrived, the NYPD's riot control. And after a few hours, the crowd began to break up. And then at some point during all of this, Marty Robinson shows up. Siegel remembers seeing Robinson, the guy he'd met at the Mattachine office his first week in New York. Not only does he show up, he shows up with a piece of chalk. And he says, go up and down Christopher Street and write, tomorrow night, Stonewall. So I did that. I wrote on the street and I showed up the wall all the way from 7th Avenue down to the river. And the next night, people do show up at Stonewall. And the night after that. When people want to say, well, I was at Stonewall or involved in Stonewall, my next line is, what did you do the following night? What did you do the following week? What did you do the next month? What did you do the next year? To me, the people who followed through on that are what created the movement we have today. A protest movement against police violence that becomes a movement against broader forces of oppression, not unlike what we're seeing today in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. Unless we realize that oppressed people are human, this will happen over and over and over and over again. In 1969, organizers began to take action, especially younger people. Siegel said some of the older organizers were actually upset by the violence. If you look at the pictures after the ride, pictures of Stonewall, there's a door and then there's two black walls. 
on one side of the black wall, you see people saying, oh, please be respectful to our neighborhood. That was written by Mattachine. On the other side, you saw people writing, we're going to organize and fight back. That was Gay Liberation Front. That shows you specifically the split in the community. Quick note here, there are splits like this that persist to this day, including over the question of naming. Should this be called a riot? Bauman and Siegel both use that word, but other people call it an uprising, a rebellion, a revolution. Whatever you call it, this event fit in many ways with the mood of the times. This was the 1960s, protest movements were rippling through the country. Civil rights, black power, feminism, anti-war. Authorities being questioned at all levels of the society during this time period. Those people on the streets in front of the Stonewall were able to be inspired to fight back themselves. It's part of this growing civil unrest, of this growing youth movement, and this growing resistance to authority. Mark Siegel felt that connection immediately. He'd gone to civil rights marches as a kid with his grandmother. And after Stonewall? I said to myself, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I don't know how I'm going to do it. There was no such thing as being a gay activist. But that's what I wanted to do. That was going to be my cause in life. Other people felt it too. All of us were galvanized for the first time to gather and get together as a community. And that get-together became a group called Gay Liberation Front. Gay Liberation Front. Even the name was revolutionary. Other activist groups had avoided the word gay, but these young people embraced it. And they started taking action in all kinds of ways. We went every single night on Christie Street and handed out leaflets talking about Gay Liberation Front or the events we were going to have or the panels or the dances. We created the first trans organization. We created the first community center that had ever existed. We created legal organizations, medical organizations. We created the first gay youth organization, Gay Youth of New York. The energy of that night at Stonewall turned into a solid year of organizing, conversation, and community building. And the following June, there was a very public anniversary celebration of Stonewall. The very first Pride Parade. But it wasn't called the Pride Parade yet. It was named for what had happened the year before on Christopher Street. Christopher Street Liberation Day March Committee was exactly what it was. We were going to have a march on the anniversary from Christopher Street and out of Christopher Street all the way to Central Park. We were celebrating what we had created in that whole first year, which was we had created an LGBT community where none had existed before. And number two, we wanted people to take pride in themselves and what we had created in that first year and to show the world that we had prided ourselves. And the only way we could do that was by being visible. Queer people had never done something quite like this before, not on this scale. And the march could be dangerous. I signed up to be a marshal, and what we did was take civil disobedience classes and learned how to protect the marchers if we were attacked, because we were sure we were, we were going to be attacked. On June 28, 1970, one year to the day after Stonewall began, marchers started to gather right near the Stonewall. These are mostly independent organizations all across the country. There are somewhere between 60 and 75 independent groups. I just watched as more and more people showed up and more and more banners came. 
I remember climbing a pole and I climbed the pole and as far back as I could see, people were still coming out of Christie Street. And I had a chill down my back. It was just amazing. I say that to you now, I'm getting chill again. And I'm, I was amazed at the spirit that we all had, which was so happy, so proud, so full of pride. We were so, you have to blank this out, fucking proud. Tell me how you feel about being here today. I feel it's beautiful. It's fantastic. The LGBTQ plus movement had arrived. It had joined the other huge protest movements of the era. Stonewall and the beginning of Pride made it harder for the U.S. to ignore such a significant part of its population. When I look back at it now, it seems almost unbelievable to me that we could be such a invisible part of society. We are so out there now. Of course, as we've said, that's not true for all queer people today. And Siegel understands. Even as he was getting involved in all this activist work, marshalling the first Pride March, he hadn't come out to his parents. He finally called them to tell them, though he says he now wishes he'd done it in person. You gotta realize that I was the president of gay youth and I was counseling other people how to come out to their parents. But of course, I called my parents. <laughs> my father wasn't shocked or surprised and said, yeah, what else is new? Here, talk to your mother. My mother only concern was uh, which he said to me, and I can remember verbatim, which was, I just worry about you, you being lonely when you get old. I wish my mother was, was alive to hear me say, Mom, I'm old, and I'm a happily married man. I think for me, uh, she would be very happy. Siegel can feel the distance he's traveled. I went from someone who was a street kid to being invited by President Obama to dance at the White House with my husband. I could have never, ever expected something like that because at that time, you could never think of a happy ending for a gay person. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, and me, Sally Helm. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our editor and sound designer is Chris Boniello. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next week.